Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico, and today we're joined Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico, and today we're joined by Stephen Cushman to talk about his book, Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War published by the University of North Carolina Press. Stephen Cushman is Robert C. Taylor Professor of English at the University of Virginia and has published five collections of poetry. His latest is a book-length poem called The Red List, which refers to the Endangered Species Register. In it, Cushman meditates on whether we can come back from certain types of endangerment. In addition to critical scholarly work on poetics and form, He has also written another book on the Civil War, focused on a single battle, and called Bloody Promenade, Reflections on a Civil War Battle. That is, the Battle of the Wilderness, the bloody field of which Kutchman lives in close proximity, prodding him over many years to reflect on that connection and the familiarity with the history that flows unheeded through our daily lives and yet, at moments, erupts. In Belligerent Muse, the subject of our conversation today, Cushman is interested and points us with gentle precision to the act of writing itself, thinking, deliberating, trying out words and phrases, composing, but as sort of the main event of the text and perhaps history itself. No doubt the poet seems very much at work here which is why I'm particularly excited to have Stephen join us today. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm very pleased to be joining you today. Great. So uh, what attracted me to this book at at first was your focus on the act of writing uh, and the idea that composition or composing is where stuff happens, where reality is shaped. What is the importance of this shift, this focus in attention um, for history, for writing history itself? And I guess in that question is what what brought you particularly to write this book? Good. Okay. The uh, well, I'll take the second part first, which is is that as you as you said, uh, I began as a as a literary person and um, writing about literature, writing about the ways various authors focus on language. And after I had done the the books that allowed me to keep my job, uh, I there was a point in the early 90s where I began thinking about a next project. And the what what has happened in literary study or what had happened in literary study is that there's been a swing towards what uh, people in in my end of the world think of as historicism. Uh, that that term is a troubled term, but that's the one they use. Right. And uh, so I began to think, well, my goodness, you know, I, I was interested in the Civil War long before I was interested in Shakespeare and Milton and Emerson and Whitman. Uh, I think I'll teach a course called Representations of the Civil War. And it was literature, nonfiction, primary sources, photography, film, all kinds of things. And I offered it at the grad and undergrad levels. And lo and behold, uh, it, it worked. And I thought, well, this is this is wonderful. I would never have thought when I was a graduate student in English that I'd be teaching this for for pay and for uh, karmic merit. And And so suddenly there I am. And the more I got into it, the more I realized and, and have come to believe firmly that uh, literature and history are very much 
siblings. And it, it, the that's not a new thought with me. Uh, history is a written art and has been since the ancient Greeks. Uh, the ancient Greeks had a muse, Cleo, for history. Uh, so I just began to think more and more about what would history be, particularly Civil War history, what would history be without written material? And the fact is it would be almost nothing. You'd have, sure, you'd have battlefields and bullets and artifacts and photographs and some other things. But most of what we know about the Civil War, we know through writing. And and that led to the first part of your of your question, which is the more I began to pay attention to the writing uh, that the Civil War generated, the more I realized that we here in the and now in the early 21st century are increasingly remote from the reading and writing practices of of people who lived in in the United States between 1861 and 1865, and uh, and now especially very recently with the ascendancy of of tweeting and and very short messages, uh, we are increasingly rendered unable to really read somebody like, let's say, Ulysses S. Grant or William Tecumseh Sherman or James Longstreet or Mary Chestnut or so many of these people who who thought of writing not as something to be hurried through, but to as something to be carefully worked upon. And so in, in some ways, I, I feel that in trying to write about Civil War writing for, write, for readers now, uh, I really am almost in the position of, say, a scholar of classics. You know, it's not quite a dead language, but it's getting there. And, uh, right. and I do feel like a sort of a translator in many ways. Right. Well, there's a lot to say about what you just said in terms of especially the changing literary cultures today and in the 19th century. I want to just go back first, though, to your comment about uh, historicization. And you started as a literary, as a literary critic, uh, but uh, then was attracted to or curious about the methods of historians. And you mentioned the word historicization. What did that mean to you? And and how did you trouble that in terms of looking at uh, uh, forms of writing? Yeah. Um, well, as I, as I, if from a, from a literary scholar point of view, when somebody says historicist and we have, we have, Certainly, in the '80s and uh, '90s, we we have a we had a phrase "new historicist." Uh, you just put "new" on something, and and that's supposed to brand it in a in an attractive way. Um, that meant, oh, we're not just going to pay attention to the operations of language within a given work. We're actually going to think about its social and political and economic context. What what a, <laughs> what a novel idea, and. Uh, and so, and so, and so, I'm for that. That was a, a good moment of rehabilitation. Uh, but then, what I started to realize the more I talked to historians is that actually, historicist used by historian is uh, is a pejorative word. Uh, it's it would be like saying you know that's presentist or ableist or sexist or racist. That's historicist, which almost means it's it's anachronistic in the way that you you're approaching something so if if i were to say um boy lincoln would be a good writer if only he could get his his messages down to 130 characters uh that would that would be as i understand it historicist in that i'm treating history from uh my particular vantage point and my particular point of view um so I become less. That's exactly what I'm trying to overcome uh, in the work that I do, which is to try to remind us that when we're reading, let us say, Lincoln or Sherman or Walt Whitman or whoever it is, we're trying to return to a moment that at that moment felt every bit as complicated and incomprehensible to the people of that moment as our moment does to us now. In other words, it hasn't been 
mulled over and digested and reduced to multiple choice tests uh, or to, or to, you know, and this would wrap, this can rapidly become very uh, contentious, this subject, but to the sorts of uh, op-ed one-liners that people are getting off now about the American Civil War, which I understand, you know, you have limited print space, you got to say something pithy, but in fact, it's not adequate. It's not adequate to the immensity of of that moment and the confusions of that moment. That's fascinating. Uh, basically, as I hear what you're saying, that historicism practiced by historians has always been about let's take the context into consideration. But the context of the past, as we talk about it today, always sort of slips into the context of the present. And what you lose in that what you lose in that elision is a focus on the on the text itself. But then what you're saying about focus on the text itself is that there is a struggle in the text. There is a um, ambivalence in the trying to capture the event that we can see happening, unfolding on the page by focusing on the text. And so so ironically, by by focusing on the act of writing or, or the forms that history takes, we are putting ourselves into the, now I shouldn't say the place of the people in the past, but at least the unknowns of, of the past that they, those writers try to capture as well as historians today try to capture. And so in some ways it, 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 it humbles us all, uh, this, this return to form. I, I think that's superbly put. I wish I had written that down in the introduction. No, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, that's exactly how I feel. And it also reminds me of that, that famous quote by Whitman that you, that you bring on, you bring, you talk about in the book, the real war will never get in the books. And, and you talk about putting the stress on the word books that the real war will never be yeah, right. books. And so the question becomes how to get the world into words. And it obviously speaks to the the themes and the questions that you you've already introduced so far as opposed to the focus on the events itself or or quote unquote the real. And I and we'll get to this later about how the real may only be able to appear in words themselves. But let's just pa- let's just yes. pause on on Whitman for a second, then, because a lot of people are familiar with that quote. And um, what what uh, was also fascinating about your your treatment of Whitman for me was you you focused on his trying to capture uh, the war, but in the sometimes failed ways. You know, we we, we celebrate Whitman for all the successes yeah. of of his poetics, but you chose to focus on on what you saw was was him trying things out and, and failing um, his yes. his missteps. So. How, how do you see those uh, as generative for maybe the final product, but also just generative for our own understanding and analyses of writing about history? Yeah, no, I think yeah, that's so important because, you know, when 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 we look at a at, at any writer, whether a, a, an imagine a so-called imaginative writer or a so-called historical writer such as, say, Lincoln or Jefferson, we we tend to see them uh served up to us in in finished packaged forms often in anthologies or selections and it and what we look at whether it's the second inaugural or the declaration of independence or Whitman's song of myself we look at it and we say my gosh this is this is absolutely perfect and uh it's how could anybody do this well you can only begin to get at how somebody can do that if you look at the other end of the spectrum, when that same writer was trying things out and they weren't working, uh, in the case of of Whitman, the little books uh, that I talk about, the great book uh, memoranda during the war, eighteen seventy five, uh, you know what you see there basically is a kind of prose workshop in which he is trying out. Lots of different styles. He he did write for the New York Times. He did write for newspapers. So he has a certain journalistic style available to him. But he also wrote uh, a a kind of pot boiler uh, temperance novel uh, called Franklin Evans back in the eighteen forties. And and so he all, also has a kind of lurid pro uh, fictional prose style available to him right he also has this he also has this new kind of strange 
verse form that he's been working on. And so he has lots of different registers, lots of different gears in his transmission. And you can what you can watch is as as the war news starts to roll in, he, he makes contact with the war directly in December of 1862 after his brother George is wounded slightly at Fredericksburg. So by the time he hits the hospitals and he's working in the hospitals in, in early 63 and then through the rest of the war, you can see in in this book the process of him trying out different ways to talk about the war. And some of them, in my judgment, are spectacularly successful uh, in ways that anticipate, say, Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Others are just really embarrassing, and they're they participate in sort of uh, florid, overwrought nineteenth-century overwriting. And I think it's by looking at those latter examples, and and where the failings are, that one is in a position then to appreciate how extraordinary the achievement is when he gets it right, uh, gets it right in a way that we think is is powerful. Um, One of the things that Whitman was always so anxious about, you can see it everywhere in his work, everywhere in his verse, everywhere in his prose, is the realization that he's brief and transient and he wants to be talking to future generations. So one way to measure him on his own terms is how well he talks to, say, us right now, in the 21st century and and he often does and and he does because he tries out a lot of other things but he also hits on these moments which we happen to recognize now as things that work for us and i think this would be an example of one of the things that he hits on that works for us uh, but you can give another example you talk about how Whitman, in a sense, pioneered a kind of every man history, uh, specifically of the Civil War, focusing on uh, the individual soldier, the the unknown soldier in some instances, and and the interactions, the physical interactions, gestures, touches, looks, words exchanged, uh, say, uh, on a, from a soldier lying on a bed and Whitman sitting next to the soldier talking. Um, and... Th- you you suggest that this is the beginnings of sort of history from the bottom up in a sense and and of course what's so powerful about that claim is that you connect it with uh his discovery of a way of writing history so it, we usually talk about history from the bottom up as a as a po- solely a political ideological question about including that which is left out of history and that is true that is as part of it certainly more recently but what's fascinating about what you're saying is that, but actually, in some ways, it, it it begins as as an attempt to find the way to capture, quote unquote, the real war. So is is this beginnings of you know uh, history from the bottom up an example of the way Whitman, something Whitman found that still speaks to us today? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly correct. The uh, <clears throat> the. Whitman, you know, Whitman's politics are complicated. So to try to uh, recruit him as a as a as a poster boy for uh, liberal politics, if that's what one was interested in doing, wouldn't work. I mean, his racial politics are 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 different from a lot of what we would recognize as uh, enlightened at our moment. But what what you get. What happens is instead of a theoretical approach to writing history from the bottom up, you get an intensely pragmatic one, which is here I am in a ward, in a hospital ward in Washington, D.C. after, let's say, uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville and and these and and this entire place is groaning with broken-bodied young, and in some cases not so young men, from both the North and the South. Fewer of the South, but they were there too. And here I am going bed to bed, trying to talk to these young men, listen to them in any way that could be helpful, cheering them up, giving them little things, and hearing their stories again and again and again, hearing their stories. And how do I, Walt Whitman, somehow reconcile these little stories 
with the idea of the massive totality of the war, as it is seen from, let's say, the highest offices in Washington or the highest offices in in Richmond, Virginia. And I think that uh, one of the things you can feel in Whitman is almost a kind of uh, mathematical awareness of how small one soldier is in relation to the whole, and yet how intensely important he is in relation to the whole, precisely because he is, uh, Whitman's word would be, typical. He could be, he can be, rent, he can be extrapolated from right. to, uh, into, into a larger picture. There are things to question about that assumption on Whitman's part, and I talk about some of those. But, uh, you know, what we can feel it in at this moment is Whitman is sort of starting to become and this is one reason I think he speaks to us, he's starting to feel some of that same kind of uh, staggering awe before the prospect of mass anonymous violence that we subsequently know so well from World War I and World War II and on and on and on. He's starting to see that and he's starting to realize that, that his problem as a writer is a problem of scale. How do I go from my immediate, what I'm seeing, and he said, he's very clear. He says, I doubt that anybody can get a picture of this war without the experience I'm having. And you could say on the one hand how totally narcissistic and solipsistic that is. But but the prop but probably but it's right, right? It probably is right. And it probably is true of, you know, the over three million people who who participated in that war or the millions of people who who stayed home and worried about them that that that's what he was after is how these atoms how these little phenomenological atoms of, of individual experience aggregate themselves into a whole of of what's going on right so yes you do take him up or you question his his claim that he is writing about the representative man or, or his word, the specimen uh, of the war. And of course, if, if by numbers, in terms of a sociological analysis, you're right that that uh, who he was writing about was not necessarily representative in, you know, a pure kind of a population distribution question. But uh, his interest in the individual uh, and how he presents the cares and concerns of the individual is representative in terms of the individual or the singular or the uh, perspective of any one person. And it's that, I think, that would speak to people today, even if it, it, the soldier himself does not look like you today. Yes, no, I think that's right. And, and as you were speaking, I just put together one other thing, too, is don't forget that Whitman uh, arrives in Fredericksburg t- almost exactly two months after um, Matthew Brady's Dead of Antietam show uh, shows the, these first photographs of of the aftermath of Antietam. So there's a way in which those that the, the closeness of those two events, uh, since Whitman certainly would have known the, the, the Brady photographs, how do we go from the, from these, these images of dead individuals, dead people, each with a story. How do we go from, from those people to then the stories of the, soldiers while while they're still alive. And I think you can draw a really pretty direct line from that that Matthew Brady dead of Antietam show through Whitman right right to the Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, uh, where the idea is here here are the dead, here are the names. We're just going to put the names up, but every single one of these names is a story. So you're left to infer the story from the name on the wall. It's interesting. It, it's sorry. It's just. It's just add. It's interesting that whenever Whitman is trying to specify a soldier, he always starts with his name. He puts his name down, and then he puts where he's from and what 
regimen he's in and that it's just that bare information that becomes so powerful right the the proper name the individual's name as as the trace of their singularity in the world set against in terms of the myelin example a deep uh irrevocable scar in the land and that juxtaposition between a kind of general shared scar and the specificity of a name and the friction they cause between them is somehow the truth in all there is to say and i i i find your connection between the from between brady's photographs and and whitman's project very persuasive as well it also reminds me of um one of the was it one of the brady photographs that you know someone's body was moved into place uh in order uh to to create a scene and scholarship has has been critical of that move saying well this is not real them because he brady or whoever was taking the photograph i forget it um uh gardner maybe it was alexander gardner who Gar- was it's gardner at gettysburg yeah. yeah um that he was staging it and of course that is a very similar question to the ones we're talking about now in terms of whitman's maybe even composite f- uh pictures of these soldiers even though he might be using an actual person's name it also brings me to the question of your own method of writing uh, this book and um, your way of kind of sort of smashing, you know, the illusion of things, but but with all due respect. And I, and as I was reading it, I was thinking, why wow, you would make a really great uh, literary critic, just of you know contemporary work. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I also thought of uh, Errol Morris, the documentarian who's 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 investigated sort of minutia of of historical fact um, with photographs as well. Um, but for both, say, you uh, and Errol Morris, um, these possibilities of what might be real uh, turn on small bits of information. And and the reader wonders, what, why, is, why does this matter exactly? Uh, but it does matter because the effect, the cumulative effect is that you're sort of stripping, stripping a moment down to, to the unknown, where in the end, you feel or at least I did, newly in the presence of something that was real, uh, because at the end of the day, we don't quite know. And it's that you bring us to that moment of, of, of the always being created. And I am thinking also of the, what you talk about in terms of Lincoln uh, meeting Emerson and whether Lincoln had been to Emerson's or heard Emerson talk in person? Was he, quote unquote, there ever in the presence of Emerson to hear? And the ambivalence of whether he was actually there, because you go, well, he could have been based on these diaries, and, and but really probably not. And again, the reader might be wondering, why does this matter? But then again, when you get to the end of it, um, you make the question sort of quiver um, as if the ambivalence of whether he was there or not is, is the life of the men interacting in the room when Lincoln and Emerson do meet and that they felt each other's presence and impact, you know, nonetheless, or, or we feel their impact and presence nonetheless, uh, because of this, you're sort of peeling away what the facts might be and allowing us to see where, where we end and can know no more. And I'm sort of wondering what is the role of that, that ambivalence, um, at the very bottom or core in providing us a reality. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, now we're at the heart of things. Uh, I let's let's start with the word fiction, <clears throat> which uh, I think if you were to ask if if I were to wander over to the history department here and uh, start talking to the graduate students who are st- doing the his- the Civil War <clears throat> and say, do you do you practice fiction? <laughs> They would be hor- they would be horrified by that idea, and uh, no, they they practice fact or they they traffic in facts, and and then you just have to you, it takes only a little thinking to realize well, but fiction and fact aren't aren't opposites uh, any any more than necessarily belief and doubt are are opposites. Right. Fiction, <clears throat> the word fiction coming from the Latin, all it means, it comes from the word that gives us our word finger. And all it means is to shape or fashion or uh, manipulate in some way, uh, to, to, to knead it as in K, 
to knead it like clay. And, um, and then you start to think, well, what piece of writing isn't like that? And, and then just to jump to what I take to be the, the point of your question is, is a quotation I love from uh, the aphorisms of the po- poet Wallace Stevens, who, who was very skeptical in many ways. And he, uh, he wrote in one of his aphorisms, the final belief is to believe in a fiction which you know to be a fiction, there being nothing else. Hmm. And I think it's that second part that you're pointing to is that is that we, we start with, uh, a mo- with something that is either pre-verbal or non-verbal or a-verbal uh, in some way. Let us say uh, the assassination of Lincoln. No, no one there's not, I'm not such a skeptic that I believe right, that, right. that 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 didn't happen and it only exists in the world of words. That's ridiculous. It happened. We know it happened. But then what happens is people start to write about it. And as soon as they start to write about it, the distance between what happened and something else is beginning to open up. And we have a very, you know, particularly now at our moment, we have a very naive trust in uh, pictures, photographs to somehow be truer than words. And we have that terrible uh, platitude about one picture's worth a thousand words. But what I always want to say is it depends on whose words. Uh, I'll take, <clears throat> I'll take 10 words by Shakespeare over a hundred a hundred selfies that you took yesterday, uh, any day of the week. And, and so I think it just, what you start to get into is now as language is, 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 is the, the tissue that binds us to that original moment. And, and without that language, we have other things to connect us to that moment, but they are no less, fictional in their way. Photographs are completely framed and arbitrary and off to one side, and it depends on what's in them and uh, all kinds. You, know, you, you point out the example of, of Alexander Gardner's Devil's Den sharpshooter. Right. We have the famous, famous photograph of the napalm girl from Vietnam, all kinds of things. Um, words somehow we distrust and think are secondary, but they're not. And, uh, and I really... Uh, I find that that the creative nature of them is their most is their most real factual aspect. Yeah, that's that's very uh, well put and 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 generative generative for developing an understanding of what history or the real is that would speak to both quote unquote fiction writers or prose writers and historians. As I'm hearing it, or as I would put it, then it would almost be that history, whatever the historians in the graduate department think that they're doing, is the very mark of the unknown, as I said, or 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 or, or the space around which words work. So so histor- so uh, historians are are using words, the same material, the same means by which any writer tries to capture something. Uh, but maybe maybe the difference could be in that the historian is more is more interested in capturing that unknown at the very core of of the of writing uh, around which it it circulates and and if you told that to a historian they may say well then now that sounds poetic but maybe yeah, right. maybe <laughs> maybe poets are actually the purest form of the historian uh, in terms of you know, now I'm thinking of Emily Dickinson uh, in in terms of even using space on the page to to show a kind of hiccup in our discourse or a catch in the throat where where we know we have hit or someone has hit on something absolutely real. And and it is the something that that is not it does not appear fully before our eyes. And it's it's the use of words that actually gets us to that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and again, you look at you look at the you look at the uh, etymology of the word history. It's the same as the etymology of the word story, and they and those two go along, just meaning basically a narrative for quite happily for a while, and then it's somewhere in the say the the sixteenth century ish 
that they part company and story starts to take on a a, a more imaginative connotation. But but early on, uh, they're the same. And and I'll just I'll give you one other example that I think is is opposite. Uh, my sister was telling me that uh, when she was on jury duty, uh, and it was for a, case, a, a traffic accident case, but it was a bad one and it was important, that that the judge instructed the members of the jury not to talk about the case at all. And, he, and the judge didn't mean with outside people, he meant with each other. And the reason that he gave them this instruction was as soon as you begin to talk about an event, you start to, you start to judge it. You start to judge it and frame it and select details. And as soon as that happens, then from my point of view, you're, you're, you're underway in a kind of literary art and, uh, uh, or a poetic art or historical art. I mean, they all, at that point, I think they're all together. Yeah. And I, I just want to add uh, something to the to the etymology of the word history because I've been thinking a lot about this recently. There's a wonderful scholar. His name is Jonas Greithlin. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. But he has written about the beginnings of history as a genre and uh, it its response to or quote unquote correction of epic poetry at the time in trying to 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 sort of dial down the hubris of the hero the historian was was doing and that that what also is in the etymology of the word history is is research or is to search again and that the storytelling uh, the, of the historian was to was to go back and look again and look again and look again and it just speaks to this sort of ever circling of a moment uh obviously with words but but not to feel that you captured it and then you move on, you know, you, the, the, w- which is in some ways is how we assess historians today. Oh, I got it better than anybody else. So now we know the real story and we can build on this history when really the, the impetus of history is to continually to circle that which we are trying to get at, but never quite get at. Yes. And, and I think, I mean, just, just so that nobody, if, if anybody should listen to this, just so that nobody well, I hope people comes, listen to this, yeah, right. <laughs> it, 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 just so that nobody comes away thinking that, oh, that was the guy who said there's no difference between poets and historians. I think there's a very great difference, particularly now at this moment, uh, because I think historians, however creative their endeavor, inescapably creative ende- their endeavor is, do start with an assumption, at least Civil War historians that I work with, do start with the assumption that there is an archival record that, that they that they that they come into, they didn't create, and that they are beholden to it and def- and, and subordinate to it. Whereas if you're a poet, particularly if you're an American poet in the Whitmanian vein, basically you start with the assumption that really all I need is myself. And uh, if I want to talk about the past, okay, I can do that, but I don't have to talk about the past. I can talk about what I see out the window right here or what I imagine is going to happen tomorrow. And, and that is different. Uh, the the material, the, the material of language may be similar, but but I think that that initial uh, procedural assumption, I do want to just make clear, I do believe in. And when I'm writing as as an historian, uh, I'm not I'm not just off celebrating myself uh, and assuming that what I assume you shall assume. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, exactly that, that the historian is looking for trace material traces of the past. I would just suggest that that material trace of the past might, might appear in the materiality of the words themselves. Yes. Yeah, see, that's my thing. That's my thing. So that, for example, uh, if you're going to get into the moment, let's say when, when somebody who's writing in the, as close to the present tense as you can get and and let's say it's a, a, a reporter for the New York Times or in the New York Herald, and you're reading along, and w- embedded within that is, let us say, an allusion to the Bible or an allusion to Shakespeare. And yes, they are they are plentiful at that moment. You realize that that writer is is part of the historical trace for that writer is not only the events that are going on that he mostly he is trying to talk about. 
but it's also the history of verbal expression that's available to him, the currency with which he can complete this transaction, that he can count on his readers to recognize. And that, to me, is what's fascinating, particularly because now so much of that is lost to us. Right. Uh, The question being what this history, what this information is doing for the listener or reader and how that reception is shaped by what they know outside of this one text or history or claim about history. And that's one of the distinctions you make between today and the 19th century is that for lack of a better word, it was a more literary culture that 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 people may have read more or known more classical allusions and such. And one of your primary examples of that is uh, Union General William Tecumseh Sherman and his reading uh, of of history and classics that shaped then the writing of his his memoirs. And so, can you can you talk a little bit about how reading? not only shapes our writing, but also shapes our perception of that writing and maybe how we see the world itself. Yes. I mean, one, I can go at it. I'll go at it backwards and just say one of the things that's uh, sort of uh, sadly amusing to me is when I pick up uh, or I look at something online or I pick up a, a, a magazine and I realize how many cultural allusions there are that I don't get. I realize this process is happening all the time that 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 writers are using writers are using uh, the, the the familiar things of their verbal landscape to project and shape an intended audience. And and more and more, I'm realizing I'm often I'm often not in it. Um, if I, if we work back to the Civil War. That take somebody like Sherman, who was I, I, a lot of people I don't think know this, uh, an, an intensely self-consciously artistic sensibility from the beginning. He wanted to be a painter as a young man. Um, he loved going to the theater. He had a great sense of theatricality and drama. And so as he's as he's reading and uh, absorbing, and then also being a primary actor in so many of the major events of the war, these things are intermeshing for him. And when he comes, say, to write to his wife or to write a, a report uh, back to his superiors or uh, to write orders to his troops, uh, these the structures available to him, the conventions of language available to him have been shaped by by his deep literacy. And it doesn't mean that he's, you know, he's throwing out uh, Latin phrases all the time, but it does mean that there's a certain, there's a certain verbal discipline that he brings to bear on his expressions and his communications that, that both reflects and shapes uh, the world that he wants to speak to. Right. So we see the world or we see each other through writerly modes or 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 even uh, seeing as a form of writing or or we are writing as we are seeing. And uh, and of course, this could easily become mythological. You know, Whitman created in America that we have dreamt through the development of his style or or something like that. But it's also just operative every moment of the day that that our assessment of, quote unquote, the moment is is shaped by identifications with people from our past authority figures that we look up to or that we've read about the words of others, all all of this. Uh, And and it it is crucial because because we all might be trying to decipher a similar moment with very very high stakes or very high symbolic stakes and that reminds me of a a a moment you focus on in your chapter about um uh, uh Joshua Chamberlain the union um I don't know uh it was it was a was he, he was a general okay. general by the yeah yeah Okay, so so Will, uh, sorry, Joshua Chamberlain at, at Appomattox at the end of the war, and he in his memoirs, uh, or at least the account of this this uh, incident, uh, which he writ, wrote about a few times over his life after the war, is of the Confederates marching by the Union Army uh, during their surrender and 
what some kind of gesture that the Confederates offered to the Union Army, um, what what did that gesture mean? Was it a gesture of peace? Was it a gesture of ambivalence? Did it even happen? Uh, was it a a sort of um, need for reconciliation or the belief in reconciliation on a part of the Union? Um, but but that the whatever the contours of the gesture. Um, it was seen in relationship to what the individuals on the ground and then the readers subsequently were thinking or feeling or needed to think or feel. Yes. Uh, and, and what's, uh, I mean, that, that moment, whatever it was, did, did Chamberlain order his, uh, his soldiers to salute the surrendering soldiers of uh, John B. Gordon's corps? What, what, what happened there? Yeah, we, we don't no, there's you know, there are no cameras were rolling. We don't know. But what we do know is that that moment has had a disproportionate effect on Civil War memory, which of which is the big, you know, you know, as well as I do, is the big, big term of art these days in the field. And uh, one of the terms of art. And it, it's 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 so powerful that not that you can you can hear you can hear it narrated if you go to Appomattox and take a tour with a park ranger and you can hear it. Uh, one of the things I talk about in that chapter is are all the recent books uh, on very different subjects. There's a book on leadership. There's a book on forgiveness. There's a book on how to be a good minister. And and all of these books tell that, refer to that story uh, of Chamberlain and, and Gordon in ways that show that it has become mythologized into something iconic that we definitely value. Many of us definitely value. Um, and it, it's what's, what's fat. What I try to do in that chapter is to, is to show is to break down and show as though it were a film frame by frame, uh, how the written account emerged and and what why a, dif- a particular difference in a in account between accounts might matter why some differences between accounts probably don't matter they're probably trivial material um, one thing that's also fascinating about that particular moment is how go- how each of the two principals uh Gordon and and Chamberlain recognized what they had here because then they started appearing on uh on stages together when they were giving speeches and you realize that this was becoming a, a reconstruction era image of reconciliation between white populations of the North and the South and, and how important that was for certain people. Both those men, not coincidentally, are, were very successful politicians. So they were shaping the, the moment to their particular needs and, uh, uh, aspirations, but it's, it, you know, that, that actually that little moment that, that closes the book, that Chamberlain moment is a kind of, I, I think of it as a kind of fable about how the whole thing works much of the time that, that you go from the, the raw material of the actual surrender and the letter to his sister. And then over the years, it changes and changes. And now we have, the story, uh, the story that we invoke and and treasure many people. It's interesting that as I was recounting that moment, I actually flipped it. I said that it was the Confederates who saluted the Union, which is just to say in my mind as I was reading it, my imagination was going and I was thinking about um, – the the meaning and the power of of say a salute on the part of the Union Army towards the Confederates that it was surely if it happened or however it happened was a recognition of some kind of brotherhood or reunion or whatever you're saying but that then that implicates the Confederates as well in my mind and so it it was formed and shaped by you know how you're talking about this moment how Chamberlain was writing it but then what I did in my mind with that image. And, and it's a, it's a question of, of, as you've been saying too, about a writing and representation as read over time and that, and that the, the gesture actually continues the gesture itself. I guess that's what I was also want to say. The gesture itself, whatever it is actually is happening. It continues to be made in the published form. 
And it's it's the, the so the ge- gesture is happening through the writing. It's refined and forever po- for whatever political reasons. Um, but that it's still it still matters today. And Chamberlain and Gordon knew that that it actually matters more uh, after the fact than whatever quote unquote happened then. And uh, that's what's interesting is that something comes to matter through wor- through words that beyond everything else, and uh, and and of course we're interested as as historians to the traces that remain. But sometimes the only trace that remains is the word, is the description, <laughs> you know. And so, well, then you get to then you then basically what you do is you is suddenly what we mean by history splits, and you have the history in this case the history of the surrender at Appomattox, that's number one, but then you have the history of the narration of the surrender at Appomattox. And, and that those, those, uh, those are certainly overlapping and they parallel one another, but they're not the same thing. Right. They're not the same thing. Uh, but in some ways one has to ask why do certain and you you ask this in a way why do certain historical accounts uh accounts that say a historian in the graduate department would say is what they're doing how do some of those or why do some of those remain over time or stick with us and others are forgotten and and it is i think a question of of the mode in which you're writing, um, and the use of not not fiction, not making things up, but but fictional modes or or or, or poetic modes in the writing of of the best histories to, for example, create affect or say surprise, and as opposed to a kind of official quote unquote historical description that that knows all, and and in some ways those are those are the the, the ones that profess to know all are the ones that disappear most quickly. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not because they're wrong or they're right. It's not a question of being wrong or right. Um, it's just a question of how people make meaning and continue to make meaning. And so that the most literary or aesthetically pleasing, let's say, um, h- historical texts um, come to matter the most in terms of capturing the truth. Uh, I mean, I just, uh, there are a couple of things. One is that uh, I remember reading uh, James McPherson when he was talking about the incredible success of of Battle Cry of Freedom, his Pulitzer Prize winning book from the 80s. Um, in one, in one moment, at one moment in one account, he says that the most satisfying response he got from many of his readers who wrote him letters was they would say to him, Battle Cry of Freedom reads like a novel. And and that's that's a very interesting moment because on the one hand I, I I certainly can understand how Jim McPherson might find that deeply gratifying and and so would the his 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 uh, editors and salespeople at Oxford University Press, but on the other hand, wait a minute because now what's happened is is history at least in a moment like that history is taking pride and pleasure in shaping itself like an entertaining easily absorbable literary form and right. and so and so at that point you're starting to say interesting would do in the beginning maybe i'm trying to separate myself as a as an historian from from literary people because i'm i want to do these things with the archive but when i've produced my product i want many of the same things that literary people are after when they write with respect to say an audience. Yeah. Wanting to be read, wanting to be read, wanting to be remembered. Um, And then I'll give you one other example. That's interesting with respect to what you're saying. This is a new, new thing I'm working on and it's not in, in belligerent use, but I'm, I've gotten very interested in the, um, surrender of Joseph Johnston to William Tecumseh Sherman down in North Carolina a couple of weeks after Appomattox, which is a larger surrender than Appomattox if, we, if we're looking at the number of troops involved in that surrender or, or, or uh, under the authority of that surrender. But it's one about which we know popularly almost nothing. Uh, I've had a number of people say, oh, there was another surrender. I thought it all ended with Appomattox. 
Well, one of the re- one of the reasons we don't know so much, a couple of reasons. One is that Lincoln is assassinated between the two surrenders and suddenly nobody's paying attention anymore to uh, sort of the mop up of the war. But the other is uh, basically the only two accounts you have of this of that surrender are in Sherman's memoirs, which are quite which are great and worth reading, and jo- Joseph Johnston memoirs, which are a real slog and uh, not a whole lot of people are are spending a lot of time with. And so, if you have no no equivalent of a Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain to to keep alive a moment from that surrender what what do you have well in this case you have it seems almost a kind of amnesia right which is not which is the very opposite of what historians want which is the very opposite of what historians want yeah and and so one is as a writer either of history or whatever forced to 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 use some kind of forms or tropes of the contemporary culture in order to even begin to to be read in a way that might allow the reader to recognize something that you want them to recognize. And I'm thinking about the future forms of history now as we wrap up our, our interview. And these texts of the 19th century, you know, they, they could not be written now. It's a, it's a, they're of a different time. Their sentiment is of a different time. So I'm wondering, what, what, is, what is the form of history into the future uh, or a form of historical writing that you you see would be most valuable in this moment. Um, certainly that that has feeling to it and sentiment. I'm not saying it should be dry. Um, yet yet we do live in a different time of 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 uh, where the the affects of the of the world um, are are felt differently. And although there are attempts to bring us back to a kind of simplistic nationalistic understanding that sort of obfuscates the real in many, many ways. And I'm not talking about that, uh, but uh, there, we also are in a culture where, where, where things are, are, are shorter. You know, we talked about, we mentioned Twitter a few times, things, uh, uh, sentences, words are cut, are shorter. You know, there's just been a whole postmodern thing. And is, how do we bring that? Should we be bringing that into our writing of history? Um, in order to not only capture the the past, but actually have it be read. Yeah, well, I mean, w- one of the things uh, I think it's in the Whitman chapter. I do start to think about is what are the what are the you know what are the digital possibilities for history? We have all kinds of uh, digital projects. Uh, my former colleague Edward Ayers has this digital project on the Valley of the Shadow, um, and so. So there might may be much in that direction. If we stick to writing, um, I think we do have some very good examples of of writing that continues to be read. And I'm thinking now of people who sort of uh, bridge the divide between the academic and the non-academic. And those would be people like um, Doris Kearns Goodwin or Stephen Ambrose or David McCullough. Right. Uh, And and. And these books, I mean, I, I don't have sales figures in front of me, but they do seem to do well. Um, and then the other the other zone that I think probably is going to become increasingly important is probably uh, film documentary. And uh, here I'm thinking about, say, most recently, the Ken Burns, Lynn Novick of uh, 18 parts on Vietnam. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of blogging about that and a lot of historians saying, no, no, what about this? What about that? Uh, but, but the fact is, you know, something like 12 million, 12 million people watched that first episode. And, and I, I have a feeling that, that, that that form, that medium will probably become increasingly important for those who are interested in history as well. We also have we also have the even larger question of what role history will play at all, um, because to in order to be interested in history, one has to have an interest in the value of the past, and that's not a given. Uh, I don't think that that's a given as as our present becomes. Uh, more and more hypnotizing and more and more uh, distended in many ways. 
it's it's not clear to me how many people are going to be troubling themselves a hundred years from now about the years eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five. Well, that just means that the pressure is on the historian to create forms in which history comes to matter. And that's what we've been discussing today. And obviously, we've tossed around all sorts of, of, of questions and challenges embedded within that larger question and challenge. And so for that, I am very, very grateful, uh, Stephen, for you joining us today. Uh, we have been talking with Stephen Cushman, uh, who is a poet and a literary critic and a professor of English at the University of Virginia. And the subject of our conversation was his book, Belligerent Muse, Five Northern Writers and How They Shaped Our Understanding of the Civil War. Uh, Stephen, again, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Michael. I've enjoyed it.